Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store at etsy.com slash shop slash beyondblathers to see the stickers and postcards we have for sale. And you can now join our new Patreon to receive a monthly sticker and print in the mail from Olivia. You can find us at patreon.com slash beyondblathers. And thank you so much to everyone who signed up so far. Yeah, thank you all so much for your support. And this week, we are really excited to be doing a special episode to celebrate Pride Month. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, Happy Pride to everyone. Yeah, we are going to start up the episode with the rainbow fish, just because their name is so adorable and on theme. And no, it's actually not the rainbow fish from the children's book. Oh boy, was it kind of hard to Google them, actually, because they (laughs) kept getting like, you know, the little rainbow fish children's book where it has like the shiny scale. Oh yeah, that was one of my favorite books. Yeah, it's a very popular children's book. So I had to like crawl over all that information (laughs) to find uh, the group of animals, the rainbow fish. And then after rainbow fish, I have some fun facts about homosexuality and hermaphroditic sea creatures because it's Pride Month. And I just think it's fun to talk about how many animals don't conform to a reproductive binary. And so in celebration of that, we are going to talk about that for the second half of the episode. I'm really excited. And a quick note on language. So the term hermaphroditic is something I'll talk about a lot later on. And if you've been listening to our show, you would probably be familiar with it. In case you're not, or if you need a refresher, it is a scientific term referring to a non-human animal that is capable of expressing or contains both male and female sex organs or sex characteristics. So I'll be using the term sex instead of gender as well, because gender is very complex and in part involves how an individual thinks of themselves. We don't really know what's going on in the minds of little fish and other sea creatures, so it's more appropriate to use the term sex when referring to whether they are expressing male or female characteristics. So just thought I'd go over those little definitions before we get going here. Yeah, totally. Thanks for putting that in scientific context for us, Olivia. And yeah, I guess before we get into all of that, let's see what Blathers has to say about the adorable rainbow fish. So if you bring a rainbow fish to Blathers, he'll say... The rainbow fish is a tropical fish known for its metallic colors and beautiful fins. There are over 50 different species, each a unique and pleasing color. I must say, it does make me wish for feathers of a more exciting hue than underbaked brownie. Aww. (laughs) Blathers wants to be a pride owl. Yeah, aww. Well, maybe he can dye his feathers. Yeah, rainbow. So cute. Yeah, these fish are so pretty. And I was reading the range of where rainbow fish live, and I got such an intense feeling of wanderlust. Like, they're from northern and eastern Australia, Madagascar, Sulawesi, and New Guinea. And all of those places, I'm just, like, picturing the water is warm and fun to swim in. And I just really wish I was swimming with rainbow fish right now. It sounds wonderful. Although they are freshwater fish, so I guess maybe, like, swimming in the rivers of Australia isn't exactly the safest place to swim, considering their lovely abundance of crocodilians. But nevertheless, I wish I was there right now. So these fish actually are quite a big group. So rainbow fish is the English name for a family of fish in the Melanotanidae family. 
And this is the largest taxonomically related group of freshwater fish in Australia and New Guinea. So it really makes up quite a bit of their freshwater fish, which is really neat. And despite what Blather says, there's about 100 species of rainbow fish with more being discovered relatively frequently. So I think genetic analysis is revealing more species than we previously thought. I mean, I guess Blathers was right that there are over 50. (laughs) That's true, I guess. There could be like a million and he'd be right. Yeah. (laughs) So how big are these fish? You keep calling them like little rainbow fish. Are they quite small then? Yeah, they're pretty small. Like on average, they're a bit shorter than a pencil, but some can be as small as like an inch long when they're adults. So cute little sort of guppy like fish. And you said they're freshwater. So where are they found? Like lakes, rivers? Yeah, yeah. Lakes and rivers as well as swamps and streams. So they're pretty flexible. And in Australia, many species in low altitudes are living in pretty variable habitats. And what I mean by that is, you know, when the wet season comes, it really floods the area. So they're used to this fluctuating water level. And the best time for them to reproduce is during that wet season because, of course, that water expands their available habitat and it brings along a lot of really delicious things for them to eat. So things like little invertebrates, crustaceans, even algae. So that's usually when they'll reproduce, at least in Australian New Guinea. But rainbow fish species that live in creeks will actually do the opposite because during wet season, creeks are running much faster. And if they were to lay their eggs, those eggs would just get like swept away by the water and it would be a huge mess. So they're more likely to spawn during the dry season. For such small fish, they're really able to pump out quite a few eggs with females laying as many as 200 eggs in a few days. Wow. Yeah. And are they actually rainbow? I feel like the one that you catch in the game didn't really look that rainbow to me. (laughs) It doesn't. And like, I think it really depends on the, I I feel like photos of these fish make them look less rainbow, but videos, you can sort of see that iridescence. And so they look more rainbow, I think, in person. So, you know, many species are very colorful. I particularly love the Uchi Creek rainbow fish. It's this really pretty sort of sky pale blue with red scales and then yellowish highlights over the body. But overall, rainbow fish tend to have kind of a silver base color. And that silver base color then has like specklings of other colors and reflects reds, greens, yellows, and blues, some even purple. And while I haven't found any particular species that sort of exhibits a large array of these colors like a rainbow, rainbow fish are known to have a variety of colors on their bodies, even within the same species. So, you know, if you're looking at a school of rainbow fish, there might be some that were more reddish, others maybe more yellowy. So you do get more of a rainbow when they're in like a collective, which I think is super cute. And I should also mention that females are typically much less colorful than males. Now, those pretty colors also make them popular in the aquarium trade. So while it doesn't seem that this affects their populations in most regions, particular rainbow fish like the Bozeman's rainbow fish in West Papua, Indonesia, has been designated as endangered due in part to overcollection for the aquarium trade. Overcollection is a bit less of a problem now because back in the 90s, about a million fish were being captured for the trade a year. 
But nowadays, there's captive breeding operations that feed the trade. So there's less collection of these fish from the wild. They are still endangered by, you know, threats that we see for the other rainbow fish as well that are on the endangered species list or are vulnerable. And some of these species have been threatened by things like introduced species in their habitats. So introduced fish like mosquito fish, guppies, tilapia, climbing perch, and snakehead. These have all been introduced to new habitats by human activity. And these fish can outcompete the little rainbow fish and eat all their food. And even some fish like tilapia might eat the rainbow fish, which is not ideal. The tricky thing with freshwater fish in particular is that their geographic range is often really small. So if you think of like a swamp in the middle of nowhere, you sort of end up with this island of fish. Like if if there's fish in the swamp, there's nowhere to go. Very often you'll have like a specialized species living there because they've been living there a long time. They've had time to become their own species. What ends up happening is that, you know, let's say there's a disruption, like mining starts nearby, or there's a local palm oil plantation that ends up destroying much of that swamp. Suddenly you have a species that's really endangered. And from what I can see on the IUCN Red List website, it seems like that is a pretty common problem for a lot of these rainbow fish. You know, you have these very specialized rainbow fish and, you know, we lose a lot of wetlands through urban development and industry, I should say, too obviously more more so industry. But other rainbow fish are doing okay. And maybe if you live in Australia or New Guinea, you may be like, oh yeah, I see lots of rainbow fish in my local stream. And if that's the case, I'm very jealous because here in Alberta, our freshwater fish are, and I say this with offense, they're very boring looking. Like it's just (laughs) how it is. I, I find freshwater fish in Alberta not very exciting at all. I mean, pike are okay. They're kind of cool, but like once you've seen a few pike, you're like, okay, I get it. I guess we have rainbow trout, speaking of other rainbow type oh, fish. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're sometimes pretty. I feel like trout are definitely like the prettier of the fish. Like they just yeah, have a nice definitely. shape to them. Yeah, so that's the rainbow fish. They're super cute little guys. But the episode isn't over, so don't turn it off yet. So I wanted to talk about the rainbow fish just, you know, because it's fun to focus on a specific animal for our episodes and its name. You know, I just couldn't ignore the name for Pride Month. But I also wanted to talk about some interesting animal facts that are sort of themed for Pride Month. If we've learned anything from doing this podcast, it's that evolution really has no interest in sticking with a particular sex binary. And I think that's so fun and fascinating to talk about. On sort of this topic, I think it's important to talk about non-human organisms when there is no clear like sex binary among individuals in a species or where we see examples of homosexuality. Because historically within the institution of science, this was and like you know, arguably still is in some places a taboo topic. And as a result, scientists who observed homosexual or bisexual behavior in nature were much more likely to dismiss those observations. That or observations of these behaviors were less likely to be published in scientific journals. More recently, we're seeing these behaviors in non-human animals being written about and researched more regularly. And so we get to learn a lot of these interesting behaviors and life histories that were previously missed or ignored. 
I mean, nowadays, the scientific community, hopefully for the most part, is aware that our social and cultural background as scientists affects how we view our research subjects. And as much as we try to remove that bias from our work, you know, this is a situation, it's a very blatant example of human prejudice strongly affecting our science as a collective. And it's really harmful, not just because we lost out on ecological knowledge, but because it gave and continues to give homophobic and transphobic people and groups this idea that queerness doesn't exist in nature. This has gotten so bad that in instances where science media shows examples of homosexuality or sex nonconformity in animals, there are individuals who think it's some kind of political claim or just generally untrue. I mean, the most recent example I can think of is in the UK, there's this kid show called Sabibis on BBC, and they talked about how clownfish can change from being a boy to a girl. And this caused outrage among some groups who felt that while the fact wasn't necessarily incorrect, the timing of the program indicated that there was some sort of underlying pro-trans slant. So I think it's really important to share these facts, not just for our own love of science and curiosity, but also to spread the knowledge that, like, this is our world. It's very normal in science and nature. And when we talk about this, it's really no different from talking about how clownfish also mate and lay eggs to reproduce. It's a really cool fact, and I think it makes clownfish much more intriguing to me. But ultimately, it's just another part of their life history. So I just... Wanted to say that because I think it's important to like normalize talking about this. I do also want to say that even if queerness wasn't present in non-human animals, humans do lots of things that other animals don't do that are totally accepted and amazing in our world. But the thing is, you know, other animals just aren't bound to our sexual binaries in any particular strict and consistent way. So yeah, just that's my soapbox. I want to talk about that. I love it. And like, I might be biased because I just am a big fan of like sea creatures but I feel like the sea creature episodes that we do for this podcast there's almost always some like wild cool I don't know life history stuff going on with yeah like the the clownfish it's just like oh this is really cool such an such interesting adaptations too so yeah I think that's honestly one of my favorite things about this podcast like I think I think learning these things about nature just just opens up your mind in in general oh totally and like it I don't know I think some people also find some sort of like like it's you're like oh they're just like me kind of vibes like Mm -hmm. when you read about this and you know if you find kinship in that then that's great that's awesome and yeah I just think it's great to talk about but it really is so funny actually like in our google drive I searched like hermaphroditic in the like search bar and we had so many so many results like I feel like it comes up in like every third sea creature episode we do it's very common yeah totally to start let's start with the snail I mean for one snails that live on the land sorry I immediately I'm like we're gonna talk about sea creatures but let's talk about the land for a second (laughs) land snails land snails they very often have both male and female reproductive organs so Even wilder, they have, like, this thing called a dart, which some described as being, like, a cupid's arrow. And the dart is attached to the snail. And then when it comes time to mate, the snails will, like, launch the dart at their partner. And it'll lodge in their body and release hormones that increase the chances of successful mating. But if they miss, you know, too bad, so sad, those snails probably won't go through with mating. But if they don't miss, you know, they're entwined and mate with one another. And the darts proceed to drop off after mating. 
So the snail will have to grow a new one within the week. There's even like a special chamber for it to grow called the dart sack. And according to Carnegie Museum of Natural History, some snail species have multiple dart sacks so that they can mate again right away and not have to wait a week. Yeah, if you remember back to our new to branch episode as well, they're like that too. They produce both sperm and eggs and their genital openings are behind their heads, which is just fun. Yeah. Another gastropod, speaking of gastropods, sea butterflies are also hermaphroditic. All are born male and then later in their life become female, which is thought to be helpful because, you know, by the end of their life, they're larger. And at that point, they're just able to carry more eggs. Yeah, very helpful adaptation. And also one of my favorite facts was from our acorn barnacle episode where we talked about how acorn barnacles have the largest penis to body ratio of any animal with some reaching lengths six times their overall body length, which is definitely wild, but they also have both female and male reproductive organs. They can't self-fertilize, so the reasons their penises are so long is so that they can reach all the way over to one another because they're actually literally cemented onto whatever substrate or rock or surface that they're attached to. So, yeah. I love it. Like, evolution is so crazy because, like, they're like, instead of making it easier to move around, they were just like, we'll just extend our organs. Like, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, six times our body length. <laughs> it's just so dramatic. And, yeah, I, I was kind of curious, like, okay, is there a reason, like, we keep reading about, like, hermaphroditic species for sea creatures. And it looks like it's just, yeah, really common with mollusks, echinoderms. So those are things like urchins, sponges, and jellyfish, and like cnidarians, as they're called as a group. They often go through like male and female stages of their lives. So very, very common. Other hermaphroditic animals we've covered also include ribbon eels, sweet shrimp, and giant clams. So we didn't even really cover all of them here. But going into the coral reefs of the ocean, hermaphroditic fish have a real advantage. So I mentioned clownfish before, and maybe you aren't, you didn't listen to the clownfish episode. So I have to tell you all the details of the clownfish drama. So clownfish live in little fishy societies where there is sort of this line of dominance between the fish. So the biggest fish will be the female clownfish, and the second biggest fish will be the male clownfish. And that male clownfish gets to mate with the female. The other male clownfish are smaller, they don't get to mate with the female, but if something happens to that female, let's say she gets snapped up by a predator, the reproductive male will see a hormonal change and its reproductive organs will become female. So then the next clownfish in line will become the reproductive male, and so it goes. Something actually pretty similar happens with the blue streak cleaner wrasse, which is another coral reef fish and is also very cute like this little blue fish. It's adorable. They have a very similar life history, except in this case, there is a dominant reproductive male and non-dominant females. So the same thing will happen where if the male dies, the female will take the place. And over the course of a couple of weeks, she will physically change into a male. And it apparently many wrasse are hermaphroditic and it's just like a very complicated process, but this is pretty common in that group of fish. Another cool one is the Australian goby. It's an Australian reef fish where all the baby fish mature into females. Some of these gobies will become male later in life, but amazingly, they can actually switch back into female. But even 
when they become male, their body actually still contains egg cells in their reproductive organs. So it's actually kind of hard to define whether they're truly a male or they just have like some male sex characteristics. It's just very cool, very complicated. It's not just that there's a lot of fish who have hermaphroditic elements in their life history. Homosexual behavior is present in fish as well. In the case of Atlantic mollies, it's been found that males who are courting females to mate are more successful in mating with females if they also court other males. Something about it is very attractive to the female mollies. And I didn't mention this in the seahorse episode, I think, but male seahorses have also been found to court other male seahorses. Not to mention, of course, that the male seahorses are the ones who get pregnant, which is so cool. Yeah, it's amazing how common this is in sea creatures. I feel like we barely scratched the surface in this little summary, but I hope it's kind of helped people like realize that this is really common and that it's very cool. Yeah. Maybe you want to look into it more or just go back through our sea creature episodes and listen. Yeah, and like I feel like I had to limit myself to sea creatures today because if you Google like I don't know, like queer animals or something. There's so many interesting stories. Like I think the most famous one is probably albatross. And I'm just saying this one off the cuff. So I apologize if it's not like perfectly accurate. But basically, a lot of albatross females will pair with other albatross females. And the idea is that like, while they will still mate with male albatross, it's beneficial for those two to have like, to essentially like mate but not for reproductive purposes to create a social bond and they're able to help each other raise their chicks more successfully. So it's really interesting and a lot of social creatures display homosexual behavior as bonding purposes and creating those like strong social connections that help them to survive. It's really neat. Definitely worth a read. I know we don't talk a lot about birds and mammals on this podcast but check it out if you're interested. That's so cool and very cute. It is very cute. Anyways, I want to wish everyone a happy pride, sending lots of love to all of our LGBTQTS plus listeners. And if you are really in the mood to learn more about queerness and science, you should also check out 500 Queer Scientists. This is an initiative to share stories from queer scientists all around the world. And they have a job board, blog, and a calendar of events. And all those events are like around the intersection of STEM and queer communities. So check that out if you're interested. Yeah, thank you so much, Olivia, for sharing all of that. And thank you everyone so much for listening. And yeah, happy Pride. Remember to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondblathers and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at beyondblathers. And find us on TikTok at beyond underscore blathers. Yes, and don't forget to take a look at our shop at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.